Well, our sermon this morning comes from John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, we, we will just be focusing on this first point this morning and, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, get out a little bit sooner than normal, as long as you promise to forget I'm able to do this. So um, <laughs> don't want anybody thinking I could preach a 25-minute sermon out there. So um, we'll pray to God and ask him to help uh, do the impossible. But anyways, John 1 and verse 14, please hear now the word of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word this morning. I ask that you would help us to, to know it, that we might know you and love you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It was on April 14th in 1961 that the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man ever to leave Earth's atmosphere and to enter outer space, making him world famous immediately and a hero of the Soviet Union. And all, all people turned their attention to Yuri when he returned to this world after he had left and to hear the message that he had for us, he who experienced no, no, something that no other person had ever experienced before. When Yuri returned, he gave the world this message, I quote him, I have been to the heavens and I did not see God, end quote. Um, Yuri would die 10 years later in a plane crash. I, I trust he saw God then um, on that day and it probably was not a sight that he wanted to see. Um, but it is interesting to me that this is the conclusion that this man who, who goes to the heavens, who goes to outer space, and he, he evidently looks for God and he, and he does not see him. The conclusion then he has left us with is if we cannot see God even in the heavens, then God therefore must not exist. Well, Yuri Gagarin shouldn't perhaps be surprised that he didn't see God because he's not the only one who has not seen God. In fact... We see here in John chapter 1 and verse 18, the Bible tells us no one has ever seen God, whether here on earth or in the heavens of outer space. No one has ever seen God, the Bible tells us. The reason is not that God doesn't exist, but that God is utterly unlike us. That is, He's invisible. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy Chapter uh, 2, I believe it is, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, God is spirit and therefore cannot be seen with the eye. And, and this is the problem that I think John is presenting here in verse 18. No one's ever seen him. See, that, that, that poses a question, doesn't it? If, if God cannot be seen, how, how then do we know he exists? How do we know what he's like? How can we understand these things? Verse 18 is posing a problem for us. 
God is unseen, the scripture tells us. But it not only poses the problem, you see, if we read on, it tells us the solution, doesn't it? No one has ever seen God, the, the only God or the only begotten God, referring to Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we not only see the problem, but we see the answer to the problem. If God cannot be seen, how are we to know him? We are to know him in Christ. That Jesus has made God known to us. That's why Paul in Colossians 1 and verse 15 would say that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus has come to make him known. We've been, of course, exploring John chapter 1, I think now for the fourth week. And we've been considering as we end this year and bring in this Christmas season, who is Jesus? Who is he? What are we to do with him? How are we to understand him? We've seen that John is is this eyewitness to Jesus, this man who walked with Jesus and knew Jesus, called John the Beloved because Jesus had this special love for him and and John had the special love for Jesus. He even put his head in Jesus' lap there at the Lord's Supper and they, they clearly loved each other. And John, I think perhaps out of this great love for Jesus, this great praise and worship of him wrote this eyewitness account so that you and I, thousands of years later, can can gather together in this auditorium on this snowy December day and that we can gaze at Jesus through the eyes of John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we might know who Jesus is. I think knowing who Jesus is is of eternal importance. I think you probably agree with me. I think there perhaps is There's nothing more important than knowing who Jesus is. Every major Christian cult seems to attack who Jesus is. They either overemphasize his humanity at the expense of his deity or focus on his deity at the expense of his humanity. They pervert Jesus. They they change Jesus. They recreate Jesus in their own image. They do not know Jesus truly. I agree with John MacArthur who has said, it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. You see, we need not only know Jesus, we need to know the right Jesus. And in order to do so, we, we don't turn to our culture and our world to understand who he is. We turn to God's word and we explore um, things like John chapter 1 to consider who is Jesus, that we might know him and might be saved by knowing him and loving him and trusting him. We believe this is of utmost importance. why we've given $14,000 in order to send people like Ryan to Central Asia because we believe knowing Jesus is of eternal consequences. He's not there, as he testified during Sunday school, simply to meet physical needs. He's there to proclaim the name of Jesus so that people may have their eternity assured for them. Knowing Jesus is of paramount importance. And so we come here to John. And John tells us Jesus has come to show us God, to make him known. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's come to reveal his glory. And so what we're going to do this morning, this abbreviated time, we're going to consider how it is that Jesus has made God known. We're just going to, we're not going to go any farther than verse 14. Maybe we'll get into verse 15. I'm going to change my points, if you will. Um, point number one is that the Word became flesh. Point number two, He did so to dwell with us. Point number three, He dwells with us so that we might see God. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us that we might see God. I take all three of those points just from verse 14, as you see here. So consider, first of all, with me, that the Word became flesh. You notice verse 14 is exactly what it says, doesn't it? And the Word became flesh. The word, of course, is a reference to what we've already discovered a number of weeks ago in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. 
So whatever the word is, we know that it is therefore eternal. It existed in the beginning. And the word was with God. That is, was towards God, face to face with God, in a relationship with God. And yet paradoxically, mysteriously, and the word was God. And so we see that this word, whatever it is, eternal, was with God and is himself he is God. We know it's a he we're referring to because verse 2 tells us he, referring to the word, was in the beginning with God. So the word is, is what we now understand is the second person of the Trinity. And that this word, this eternal God, has, according to verse 14, become flesh. He has become incarnate. He has taken on humanity in himself, which I think, of course, we all here who profess Christ would agree with. And the problem is, is that we agree with these truths and they become mundane to us and boring. And I don't know if there's a more unimaginable reality that I could share with you this morning than that the eternal God himself has become a man. It's glorious. It's unimaginable. That we, of, of all faiths, would affirm this, that our God is not distant, offering commands and teachings to do a series of prophets, though he does do that, but that he has come and, and he has become one of us. The word became flesh. I pray that this Christmas season that would grab you. That would take a hold of your heart, that you would shake your head in new disbelief. How can this possibly be? That our God has become human. Of course, in doing so, he didn't stop being God, did he? He continued to be God and human. He added to his deity perfect humanity. Please, by the way, don't think that he became a third thing. That is, that he took his deity and his humanity and melded, melded them together as some form of alloy, some new creation. He did not. That's what Coptic Christians believe, if, if you're interested. But we believe, according to Scripture... That Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He is therefore fully God, not just partially God, and he is fully human, not just partially human. And this is what I think John the Baptist testified to. Note, note verse 15. This John, this is referring to John the Baptist or the witness we saw in verse 6 through 8. John bore witness about him. So John is going to testify to Jesus and what does he testify? He cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so John says, Jesus comes after me. That is, I'm older than Jesus. We know that John is about six months older than Jesus. Jesus, he says, comes after me. I was born first, John uh, explains. But, but even though I come before Jesus, Jesus ranks before me. Why, John? Because, you see that? He was before me. He was. You see what John is saying is that this man walking around Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. He's existed forever. And John is testifying to that this man is God himself. Now think about that for a moment. Imagine if you're John and, you know, Jesus is his cousin. And one day you look at your cousin and you conclude that he is the eternal God. Do you have cousins? <laughs> I have cousins. And I can tell you unequivocally that I have never concluded, not even for a moment, that one of my cousins might be God himself. The devil, maybe. God, never. And here's John looking at his cousin, concluding that he has 
God has become flesh, fully God, fully man. We see this in Jesus' life periodically where both his humanity and his divinity are displayed. And even in the same event, I think perhaps the classical example is, is when he stills the storm. And there's Jesus there, uh, passed out asleep from exhaustion on a boat, his head on a pillow. And he's just not sleeping on a boat, which is a very human-like thing to do, but you could really testify to his exhaustion and the fact that there was a raging storm. In fact, the storm was raging to such a degree that those who were experienced on the sea thought the boat was going down, the waves must have been crashing aboard, the rain falling in the boat, and yet Jesus, unprotected by any of this weather, sleeps through it, testifying to his humanity. He is just exhausted. And yet, upon being awoken, he walks to the bow of the boat and says to the wind and the waves, Peace! Be calm! And nature obeys him to the point where the disciples would respond by asking, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Our answer must be, He is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. He gets sleepy and he commands nature. You see both in him. Or perhaps even a better example of seeing both his humanity and his divinity is found in his crucifixion. You think about Jesus being beaten and flogged, mocked and tortured. And there they parade him through the streets of Jerusalem. And he is not strong enough to carry his cross. Can't bear its weight. Does not have the strength. And they nail him to the cross. And one of the things he cries out to those who hear is, I am thirsty. How human can, can we get? Or even the fact that he dies. Is that not a testimony to his humanity? And yet in this very death, do you not see his divinity when the sky grows black and the earth trembles and the veil is torn in two that we must conclude like the centurion, certainly this man was the Son of God. He is both human and divine. Everything we believe as Christians depends on this. This is foundational Christianity. Jesus is both God and man. He grew hungry. He multiplied bread. He grew tired. He walked on water. He was weak, and yet he raised the dead. He had questions, yet he knew man's thoughts. He was humble, and he had, he had all authority. He was tempted, yet without sin. He was born, and yet he's eternal. He died and he rose again. The word became flesh. Why? Why did he take on this humanity? Well, the Bible tells us here in verse 14, doesn't it? He did so to dwell among us. He came to dwell among us. He left heaven to come to this earth that he might be with us. Do you, do you see, the, by the way, the magnitude of that sacrifice? And what Jesus had to do to, to leave heaven to come to us. I think Paul captures it a little bit in Philippians chapter 2 when he says in verse 6 that though he was in the form God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He says that he who was God, he who sat upon the throne in heaven with the angelic worship all around him, rose from that throne and came and became a servant and became a man. This Christmas, I think you would do well to consider the magnitude of that sacrifice. 
And by the way, he didn't take on humanity for simply 33 years, but he has taken on humanity for all eternity, for we see it even in his resurrection. He remains a man, doesn't he? And will forever be a man, and he has humbled himself eternally for our sake. Do you see the sacrifice in which he made to do this? If you do, I wonder if that will help you to to do likewise. I wonder if there are things that, that you're unwilling to do because it's just simply beneath you. You're overqualified for. You're not going to serve in this way. Maybe someone else can, but you're, you're too good. You want to be more well thought of. Do you see the example of Christ who, who has given up far more than we can even imagine? Sacrifice more. I mean, do you, can, can you imagine uh, maybe going, spending a week leaving America and going to some far and distant land, some poor land, and, and you have to be a week there? Do you think, well, this is quite a sacrifice I'm making? Well, or, or maybe you do it for a year. Maybe you say, you know, I'm going to spend a year in Central Asia. And you would think, well, this is, this is quite, you know, I'm going to leave in America, the, the greatest land on earth, and I'm going to a very difficult and hard place. What a sacrifice. Or maybe like our brother Ryan, you would take your family and you would spend your career there. You would turn away a lucrative career as a government contractor and say, I'm going to go to a far away place to tell people about Jesus. And we would rightly look at our brother and say, what a sacrifice you're making. But all of this simply just pales in utter comparison to what Christ has done. That he who would leave heaven to come to dwell amongst us. Brother and sister in Christ, there is nothing beneath you when it comes to service in the name of Jesus. If Jesus can do this, then certainly we can serve the uncomfortable or befriend the isolated or teach children or serve seniors. We can likewise sacrifice following the example. He has emptied himself that he might come and, and dwell amongst us. As verse 14 says, the word of, became flesh and dwelt among us. I, I, I love this picture because when it says the word became flesh, it is this glorious transcendent, mysterious reality, God becoming flesh, and then it becomes immediately imminent and intimate. He did so that he might come and, and dwell amongst us, to, to be amongst us. In fact, this word dwelled is very interesting. It's, he doesn't say he came to live amongst us. He's, literally, it's he has come to pitch his tent amongst us. He has come to tabernacle amongst us will be a, a very literal translation of this. He could have said that he come, came to live amongst us. It would be very easy to say in the Greek, but he didn't. He said he has come to pitch a tent next to us, to tabernacle amongst us. I wonder if he's helping us remember what God did when Israel wandered in that wilderness. Remember when he had redeemed them from the bondage of Egypt and they began their pilgrimage, almost like this, this million-man refugee camp wandering through the Sinai and they would pitch their tent and stay there for a little while and then eventually pack up their tents and they would go a little farther and they would pitch their tent and they stay there for a little while and pick up their tent and go. Well, it's in the middle of this while they were living in tents that God decided that he would pitch his tent amongst them, right in the middle, that he would reside within a tent, a, a tabernacle, and that he would come and he would tabernacle with them as they wandered in this pilgrimage in between their redemption to their promised land. And in between that time of being redeemed and getting to the promised land, God said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to tabernacle with you. I'm going to dwell in your midst. The Bible tells us in Exodus 25 and verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. This is what God is doing. And so when they pack up their tents, God would get his tent packed up and he would move along them. 
Well, the same is true with Jesus. You see what Jesus has come to do when he lived upon this earth is he came to tabernacle with us. He came to dwell amongst us. He came to to live amongst us. He came to pitch his tent here. I don't think the tent, by the way, is a reference to his humanity. As I said, he doesn't get rid of that. The, the idea that he's tenting among us is that he's, he's going to be with us for, for a temporary period of time while he's here on this earth. You, you know by now that I like sleeping in tents. I have, uh, I've slept in tents some more nights than probably most of you, perhaps maybe all of you. Um, I, I very much enjoy to get in the back country and to, to pitch a tent and to sleep in the tent. I, in fact, I have a lot of tents. I have one-man tents and tents that could hold my entire family. I, I have two-season tents and four-season tents. I have tents with attics, tents with vestibules. I have tents that, that you could rig a coffee cup from the ceiling and you could drink a, the coffee from the, from the ceiling. I have expensive tents and, and, um, and other expensive tents. Um, in fact... <laughs> Allegra, you might not want to be listening to some of this, right? I, I like tents. I like, I mean, I probably like sleeping in a tent more than anyone here. But you know what else I like? Indoor plumbing, right? I like a refrigerator. I like air conditioning. I like a bed. The point of a tent is that no matter how much you like it, it's temporary. You don't, you don't spend your whole life in a tent. You don't exist there forever. It's not a permanent dwelling. And so the idea that Christ has come to tabernacle amongst us is I think what he's saying is that he's only going to be here on this earth temporarily. It's not his home. And he was here and he has gone. He's gone to heaven. He's gone home. By the way, I wonder when we get to heaven, will we look back upon the 20 or 80 years that God gives us upon this earth and we'll look at it and think, that was like living in a tent, right? Now that we're home. I can't believe I put up with that for so long. He is, he is temporary. This, this idea that he tabernacled with us was, was not permanent. He has gone home. I also think, and I'm speculating here, but I think it communicates intimacy. He didn't build a, he didn't say he templed among us. He could have. That God came and Jesus, the Lord became flesh and templed among us. He could have said that. But I think of temples, I think of gates, and I think of walls, I think of formality, I think of, you know, um, uh, liturgical ideas when I think of temples. When I think of tents, I think of closeness and intimacy. Right? You pitch your tent in my backyard, the chances are you're going to use my bathroom. Right? You're going to eat at my table probably. You know, I think what God is communicating is that he wanted to be with his people. He didn't want to be known from a distance, but he wanted to be known up close, that Jesus has come to tabernacle with us. But ultimately why I think it says that he tabernacled among us is that it was in the tabernacle while they wandered in Israel that he manifested his glory. Remember in Exodus 40, after they built the tabernacle, it says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's God's glory shone in that place. And I, I think it was just a foreshadow of what Christ would like. I think it was just pointing forward that, that the glory that they saw in the tabernacle in the wilderness wanderers was simply a glimpse of what the glory would be like when Christ comes. You see, he has come ultimately and lastly to show us his glory. This is why he's dwelling amongst us. You see that in verse 14, that, and we have seen his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. He's come to show us his glory. And so when we get to John 2 and Jesus turns water into wine, the, uh, the apostle will write, this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Or we get to John chapter 11 and before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to his apostles, this sickness is not, in, not to death, but for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified in it. Or, or when Jesus is preparing for the cross in John 13, 
He will say, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. You see what He wants to do, just as in the tabernacle of old, He wants to be able to display the glory of God while He lives here amongst us in the flesh. God wants to be seen by you. He wants you to understand who He is. This invisible God has been revealed through His Son. He would say in John chapter 12, whoever sees Me, sees the Father. You see the Father... When you look at Jesus, He's come to show us His glory. Would that not be a good thing then to pray for this Christmas season? I want to be captured by the glory of God once again. I don't want to simply, Father, go through this celebration, through rote and ritual. I want my heart to be captured by Your glory. God wants you to see Him. He wants you to delight in Him. He has sent His Son who put on flesh and dwelt among us and given us word so that we might see Him. It is why the angels declared in Matthew chapter 1, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hark the herald angel sing. Glory to the newborn king, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. He's come to show you God. And so will you please invite him to your Christmas celebration? Will you let him sit at your Christmas table? Will he be there around the tree with you on Christmas morning? Will be he be on your tongue when you talk to your neighbors and co-workers? Will you testify to him? Will he be with you when you are alone? Perhaps there are some here. In fact, I trust there are my brothers and sisters who have fallen out of practice of communing with God and, st- and studying his word and getting to know him and spending time in prayer. Perhaps you would conclude that for the rest of this year, for the rest of, uh, of 2013, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to take these three weeks. I don't know if I'll get any farther, but day by day, I promise this very moment to you, God, I am going to get in your word every day and call out to you in prayer that I might see your glory. Oh, I think you would do well to do so, friend. I think you'd be richly blessed as you gaze upon the glory of God that he might sanctify your heart, your desires, your dreams and longings. In fact, let us pray and ask him to help us even now. Father, we thank you for our Lord and that he would humble himself, that the word would become flesh, that he might come to be amongst us, that we might see you, that we might see your glory. I pray for my brother and sister in Christ here who, though he he or she has this incredible privilege to gaze upon the glory of God through your word, he or she, through indifference perhaps, has decided to gaze upon everything else but your glory. The television, sports team, or work, or labor, or the household chores, and, and everything else occupies them but you. Will you please help them this very moment to elevate yourself, to exalt yourself in their heart and their mind? Will you even give them this commitment, that this, this very simple commitment for the next three weeks or so, however long is left in this year, that they will day by day spend time 
looking at your glory through your word. Perhaps reading the rest of the Gospel of John, seeing the glory of God revealed in Jesus. And for the rest of us, Father, will you please help us to take Jesus with us this Christmas season that we would indeed want most of all not to exchange gifts or even spend time with family, though those things are wonderful and and we cherish them and we will do them, but that we would do it in such a way that we might see the glory in which Jesus has come to display through Christmas. So help us to invite Jesus to our Christmas celebrations. Help us to speak of Him. I do pray for my friend here this morning that perhaps is here that does not Know this, Jesus, has not bowed their knee to him. I pray that you would even now, by your great grace and through your word and the work of the Spirit, convict them of their sin. Let them know that you are a holy and righteous God and you will judge all who refuse to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Will you please even cause their heart now to grow in joy and reception to you? Will you give them faith to trust in Jesus that they might bow their knee this very moment with arms outstretched declaring, I believe in you, Jesus, and I give you my life. I believe you have died for my sin and have been raised from the dead and I surrender all to you. Do this good work for your great glory and for the expanse of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.